Welcome to Interacting Minds, a podcast on interdisciplinary research. My name is Savannah Schulz, and today I'm joined by my wonderful new Interacting Minds colleague and Swedish interdisciplinary researcher Ingela Visuri to learn more about her new research project that explores to what extent education, life action role play, or like edu LARPing, contributes to social and theoretical learning in autistic use. to the podcast living room I guess and um, so nice to have you over. Thank you it's super nice to be here. Um, to jump right in I think um, before we get to talk about the project and kind of what you're about to embark on let's take a step back and just talk about kind of your starting roots as a researcher. So you started as a teacher in a um, specialized education school in Stockholm. Yeah. Can you take us back to that time and kind of what inspired you to do research? Yeah. Right, so uh, uh, I trained to become an upper secondary teacher in uh, English and non-confessional religious education. And uh, I was working at this school where they had uh, a corridor that was a special educational unit. And the manager there, he kept asking me if I could come up and, you know, do religious education with their pupils. So eventually I agreed and I knew absolutely nothing about any neuropsychiatric uh, diagnosis or anything. So I was actually quite nervous the first time uh, I went there to teach a group, but I had really lovely pupils. And so I ended up staying there for six years. And uh, so I had really small groups and I got to know the pupils quite well. And we had one pupil who... He had grown up in a Pentecostal congregation and he also went to a lower secondary school that was sort of had a Pentecostal sort of uh, approach to it was confessional, right? Yeah. So what is Pentecostal or like confessional? Because maybe not everyone knows what those terms mean. Yeah. Okay. So uh, Confessional means that you have sort of like a religious outlook on things. But in Sweden, we have all education is supposed to be non-confessional. So we don't teach kids or pupils about religion, but we teach them about. Or I mean, we teach about religion, but it's more about living together in a multicultural society and understanding each other and knowing traditions and rituals and stuff like that. But we also have some confessional schools. So the education is non-confessional, but then they might have morning prayers or, you know, special rituals that are allowed in those specific schools. So he was really like, you know, part of this uh, And the Pentecostals, they're like, it's a Christian tradition, a charismatic Christian tradition. Uh, and he had some questions about his own tradition, and he kept asking about the Holy Spirit and God. And he was especially interested in why people were speaking in tongues, because the Pentecostal narrative is that speaking in tongues means that the Holy Spirit comes down and sort of inspires you to speak in foreign languages. And he didn't really experience that, but he saw people speaking in tongues, and he also heard teachers and people he knew saying that God had spoken to them, and he didn't really experience that either. So we had some discussions about that. And Then one day the psychology teacher came in uh, to my desk and she said, you know, he had this really sort of sad thought today because he thinks that God might be speaking to everyone else but him. And for me, that was really an epiphany or, you know, a moment where you're just struck by the lightning <laughs> because what I had been written about, uh, like uh, in you know, my papers and stuff at university was about uh, role taking. So there are really early theories from a Swedish professor called Jalmar Sundén, who wrote in the 50s that empathy seems to be really crucial for also experiencing that kind of supernatural communication. It doesn't matter what uh, sort of culture you come from, but if you're a Hindu, you might learn about Hindu gods And then you learn also about their minds and their opinions and uh, so on through 
holy scriptures. Uh, so I had been thinking a lot about empathy and role taking. And also, since I was so interested in that, when I started working with these pupils, I started reading about autism and I realized that, okay, so mentalization and role taking, there's something at stake here with autism. This is like sort of challenging for them. So I immediately thought when I heard this comment that there's something here, like, is is there something about his autism that's making him not experiencing God and communication? But the thing is that I, I, I never thought that uh, he wouldn't be religious because I knew he was deeply religious and I knew other pupils who believed in ghosts and uh, came from other religions and... Some of them were also very interested in conspiracy theories. And that's what kinds? Like that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, but all kinds of them. But you know, they also involve mentalization that, you know, there's someone somewhere who has a plan and we can see sort of traces of that plan here and there, and we think this might be the goal, and you know, stuff like that. So I I knew there was like an interest in in things like that. So what you saw in the classroom didn't really resemble the theories available at that time, it sounds like? I don't know. I mean, I was anyway observing that they had these kinds of, you know, ideas and experiences. And I hadn't read so much at the time. But what I realized then, because I wrote, uh, like, uh, we, at the time we had uh, half a master thesis in Sweden. That was before we had master thesis programs or master programs. So I spent one year uh, writing a paper on where I interviewed four former pupils who all had those kinds of beliefs. And I tried to explore... So how do they experience invisible supernatural communication? And that, the paper was also published as an article in 2012. And that it's interesting because that year was when other researchers also started looking into that very question in the cognitive science of religion. So my paper or article was one of the first that was published. But their starting point was that they believed that autistic individuals would be atheist, that they wouldn't be able to even experience that there were invisible beings. So that was a whole different approach than the one I had. And I could also see that there were methodological issues because they didn't spend time with the people they were researching. Well, I, I knew my pupils and I had all these different cases in my head and uh, so I I actually got really uh, irritated <laughs> with the publications that came out. Uh, so I decided to write a PhD thesis on the same topic. So the tension led to something good, I guess, in this way. Yeah, I need to be provoked to write. <laughs> right, that's nice. Um, what was your PhD project then about? What what did you engage on? Yeah, so, that, uh, so I expanded the first project into... Uh, involving 17 young adults on the autism spectrum uh, who were studying in different upper secondary schools in Sweden, special educational units. So they were all diagnosed with autism. But it's autism type 1, as it's called now. So previously Asperger's syndrome. Um, and I followed them for three years and I made interviews with them and we filled out a whole lot of questionnaires because I wanted my work to also speak to those in quantitative sort of cognitive science because I'm doing ethnography. I'm from the humanities to begin with. So I spent a lot of time, you know, also figuring out how to bridge between disciplines to make my work relevant for people from other fields. And we talked about uh, what religion and spirituality was for them, but then I focused on these invisible relations. So what happened was that very early on, they wanted to talk about also parasocial characters from popular culture. And, and I also designed this method where I wouldn't really lead the interviews, but I gave them cameras. So they got to take photos and then I developed them and they guided me through the interview through 
these photos telling me about their worldviews. And then one girl, she calls herself Katsy, for instance, she said, well, I don't think I can use a camera. I need to bring my laptop because, you know, it, it doesn't work really well to photograph like laptop screens. I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever, bring your laptop. And she started talking to me about gaming characters because she's a, a gamer, computer gamer. And there was this uh, character called Nocturnal, who's a goddess. And she would talk about how Nocturnal is important to her and how she would sort of turn to her, you know, also when she wasn't gaming. And she would also, as she formulated it, she would do her bidding because she was sort of, you know, powerful and a little bit aggressive, this Nocturnal. But if she did her bidding, she would help her while gaming. And it reminded me a lot about these supernatural relations. And Katze also told me about Transformers, how she had this inner imaginary stage where she interacted with the Transformers characters that she loved. And when her parents got divorced, she sort of turned inwards and she had a dialogue with them trying to figure things out. And then she'd go out in reality or so-called reality to deal with things. And then when I started probing for that theme in the other informants, they started telling similar narratives. So I ended up also writing about parasocial characters, which are religion-like. Yeah, where do you see the parallels? So parasocial and religious relationships. I think uh, the parallel is how you relate to them because parasocial characters are about sort of making them much more personal. I mean, you could watch a Netflix series, uh, so The Bridge, for instance, and you'd think... Saga Noreen is a really cool character. But if you start engaging with her as if she really was your friend and you personalize her, so to say, then she becomes a parasocial character. And there's a lot of like interesting phenomena on that. So there are, I don't know if you've heard about Snape wives. No, tell me more. Yeah, you know Severus <laughs> Snape from Harry Potter? Oh, yes. Yeah, there are women on the internet who are sort of fighting about who of them is actually married to him on the astral plane. And they have super intimate relations with Severus Snape. And so that's a Snape that's beyond, you know, there's something yeah. more to him. It's not just a Snape from the movies or the books. But he became their Severus Snape. And they're like, they have these super romantic relations with him. I, I never heard about this. This is incredible. I um, know. So they've built this this extended character. So I guess um, a lot of people engage also in this fictional writing of extending the canon and, and writing their own. Yeah, um, yeah like fan, fan fiction. Exactly. Mm. But that goes even beyond because I think fan fiction is then continuing the story where this is for, like building a really close relationship. Yeah, definitely. And that also led me on then to start thinking about imagination. And again, I was looking up articles on autism and imagination. And I was actually really surprised when I found out that there's like 25 or 30 years of articles claiming that autistic individuals really don't have any imagination or they should be really poor at being creative when it comes to you know, thinking about something totally new, something that you haven't experienced before. And, you know, all of us who've worked with autistic teenagers, we we know how creative they are and how much they love fantasy fiction and uh, also these gaming universes and uh, magical stuff. And it really didn't make sense to me. So then I got provoked again. I started reading about and um, reading and writing about imagination and autism. So I've listened to a talk by you recently and you talked a lot about the Torrance test. So so could you give an example of why this research might have derived at the, the findings that they ended up with? Yeah. So there are experimental studies where you invite a group of autistic individuals and a group of non-autistic individuals and you compare their results to see like so what would be the autistic sort of characteristic and so the Torrance test means that you get a paper with different shapes on it it could be triangles and circles uh, and squares but you could also give 
the participants pieces of foam and then you say, okay, go creative, do something, create something novel out of this. And what they see in these studies is that autistic people sort of fail to be creative. And I should also mention that there's then a key. So there's, it's already decided on beforehand what is creative. And you have this call for replications in psychology. So people just keep on replicating that study and they get similar results. So, so it looks like a real, like, you know, solid result uh, also cross-culturally. But the problem is, you know, when you've been a teacher and teaching autistic teenagers, it's so apparent that they don't always respond super well to instructions because instructions require that you mind read the person who gave you the instructions. You have to figure out, so how am I going to go about this task and perform well? And autistic people are also quite prone to focus on doing right. They want to succeed, right? We all want to succeed. Uh, so uh, I argue that the Torrance test it actually measures like how good you are at decoding instructions from a researcher. And so how I work is that, you know, I, I'm not autistic myself. So I always have to turn to autistic individuals because they're the experts. They're my experts. And I posted a, a post on Facebook where I wrote about this. And I said, I think this is a, a methodological problem. And I have a lot of my former pupils there and also some autistic friends. So this uh, girl responded that I know exactly what you mean because when I was... Uh, in arts class in school, my teacher would sort of ask me to draw portraits and it would take me days before I would figure out what kind of portrait would I do, how would I do it and so on. But in the evenings, she would always be drawing portraits because there was, you know, it was just on her, her own conditions, like no one else would decide what to do and then she could just do it really freely and enjoy it a lot. And I think that's exactly the problem with these tests. There's uh, so so much about expectations and social norms, like having to read social norms into this situation rather than knowing what you're supposed to do. Yeah, and also this non-autistic perspective that, you know, what you see, I, I mean, you can't really take things at face value. You see something, but why do you see it? Why is it like that? That's what I'm curious about, like sort of, going beyond that, digging yeah. a bit deeper and understanding more from like an autistic perspective, like what does this or that mean? Making sense of the world from a different, I think, lens as well. That's really important. Definitely. Um, what was your findings of your PhD? So kind of what was the end point when you defended your thesis? So I, I have like, I wrote three articles and then also a methodological book chapter that was part of my thesis. So the first article is about how uh, bodies make social communication really messy and complicated. So one participant, for instance, she said that she likes animals a lot because they're so much easier to understand. Uh, because, you know, if, if a dog is angry it sort of growls and shows its teeth or if it's happy it's uh, wagging its tail but with people so how she put it was like yeah then they wrinkle their nose and they do this with their mouth and that with their eyebrows and it can mean like a thousand different things and also that people try to hide their feelings like non-autistic people we're really good at you know, putting on a mask and pretending as if everything is well. But autistic people are quite good at feeling what others are feeling. So you see someone smiling and then you feel that there's some kind of, you know, tension going on and that's super confusing. But you wouldn't have that with invisible beings because you're rid of the bodies, right? Yeah, I'm just trying to... So I'm imagining I have a relationship with... Uh, I don't know, I grew up in multiple religions, but... um. If I have a god that has a, I guess that doesn't have a body, right? Like the. I mean, you could or, imagine a body, but it's not like you see an, a body that you need to interpret. No, in, not at all. In real yeah. time, it's not like God would be frowning or yeah. being sarcastic 
like or no it always had an intention of what they're communicating with me that was a yeah yeah and one of the guys he also said that you know sometimes I think maybe I even invented God because I need him but uh, no I, I don't I don't think so I, I still think there is a God but he was quite aware of you know how he's also projecting his own sort of needs onto God which you're free to do I mean there's really no right or wrong yeah you have your personal relationship with whatever supernatural being you believe in but then I also found that they had a lot of supernatural experiences like embodied supernatural experiences yeah, that they interpreted in supernatural terms so they would see maybe someone would see a white or a girl dressed in white clothes walking through the room and her mom couldn't see that girl so she interpreted that it must have been this friend I had when I was a kid and who died and she's back to visit me. Uh, and many of them felt sensed presence of invisible bodies. So then I argued that this is uh, a, a means for them to go beyond the medical language. You know, like all of them had more or less thought, well, am I going crazy? Because, you know, Sweden is super secularized. We don't encourage sort of religious experiences or beliefs in Sweden as a culture but then they would reinterpret it in terms of being psychic or you know having special gifts and embracing it and then my third finding was about these parasocial characters that they had these inner theater scenes where they would interact with characters that they liked and it was interesting because they were always part of the theater it's not as if they were just spectators watching, but they were really part of it. And then I also suggested that this might be a, a kind of social training where you actually have uh, interaction and you also imagine in social interaction super positive and you can bring that experience into real life. And it can also actually compensate for loneliness because a lot of autistic individuals experience loneliness because it's difficult with social relations. So um, if I'm understanding correctly, so they're creating their own experiences in order to have something that they can manage and explore and feel safe in as well? Yeah. That's, um, like, I'm just fascinated completely because it's a world I haven't really, I think, had access to beforehand. Mm. And you have the story of a little boy who was actually not um, verbal when he had those kind of experiences. Yeah. So uh, he didn't start speaking until he was maybe six or seven. And so this guy, Edgar, he's Catholic and we were talking a lot about that. And then he also had supernatural experiences seeing things. But he told me this uh, interesting story of how vivid his imagination is. And many of them said, like, my, I, like there's no limitation to my imagination. And so we were sitting in a classroom and he looked around and he said, you know, I could just transform this whole room into a spaceship when I was five years old. And it would have two floors and there would be stuff and I would be the commander and I'd go like alpha alpha zero dot com, ba 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 ba. And I would interact with them and they would respond. But in real life, no one had ever heard him speaking. And that's also like, okay, you watch autistic kids and you make these experiments. Do they play with toys or do they not? But what's happening inside them? That's what I'm interested in because there might be so much that we don't see. No one would have had any idea about him playing on his own in, in his like mind with a lot of characters. And it's really about knowing the right questions in this case. Yeah. And like making those experiences visible for him and um, giving access to other people to actually see that yeah definitely um now you jumped into live action role-playing for some reason how, how did you get into role-playing well so i've never tried role-playing or larping as it's called live action role-play uh, but i have a colleague who's a professor in the history of religions and she started role-playing many years ago after be, she was uh, advising this group of LARPers on medieval Judaism and she got totally hooked. So she had some friends who have this uh, organization called the LARPing Workshop where they do educational LARPs for pupils of all ages in Swedish schools. 
And they had asked her if she wanted to come and do field work with them. And so their feeling was that this works really well, but we don't really have any evidence. So we don't have any like vocabulary to speak about it. But she's a historian, right? So just before I defended my PhD thesis, she turned to me and she asked if I wanted to write an application together with her. So we didn't get money the first time, but then... Uh, uh, she suggested that I, I go on with the application on my own. So eventually I got uh, money to do that, this pod, uh, postdoc project that I'm doing now at the Interacting Minds Center. And uh, what are you doing on that project? So you're joining Edo Labs? Yeah. Um, so I'm remolding my methodology a bit at the moment. But so the first plan was to hang out with the, the LARPing workshop and their pedagogues at different LARPs that they would do, educational LARPs with autistic pupils. I did a pilot project this spring and it, it was uh, super fun and was very difficult. We did uh, a magical school LARP. So I was the headmaster of the Swedish Harry Potter Hogwarts school. <laughs> and uh, then I interviewed uh, three pupils. Uh, who were about 15 years old. And I wanted to uh, explore social learning in LARPs. So similar to those parasocial uh, relations that I had written about before, I was thinking that LARPing is interesting because maybe you get this kind of social practice in a safe space and it's likely that you can take that experience into everyday life and use that. But I wanted to see, like, so how does this work in EduLARP? And we had a couple of nice interviews, but it was so hard for them to speak about learning. And they're not experienced LARPers either. You know, they thought it was fun and they wanted to talk about, like, silly things that had happened. But I didn't, you know... I didn't get a feeling that we would really get anything out of that. So I paused that part of the project and uh, I realized that I need to speak to experienced LARPers with autism who, you know, can look back over the years, like what have they learned and how do they use that in real life? So I posted uh, a question in a LARPing group on Facebook in Sweden and so in 24 hours I found 17 participants so we were super eager to talk about LARPing and autism. So so far I've interviewed seven of them and it's been great. It's really really mind-blowing like their uh, conclusions about the um, we're talking a lot about the difference between LARPing and everyday life because that's what I'm interested in like how does that differ social interaction in these two realms uh, and then I'm, I'm also now I've been to another EduLARP and uh, we also got money to start creating LARPs together with autistic pupils so now finally I get to follow pupils over a couple of years while they're designing the world and they're writing the characters and they're making the clothes or the gear and then also performing these edularps. So I think that will be uh, super exciting to see what comes out of it. Um, what's the difference between role-playing then in the real world for the adults that you talk to? Well, so there's a few things, but I think the the main finding I have right now is that you have nothing to lose in a role play. And if you compare that to everyday life, you have a lot to lose if you make social mistakes. Uh, and that also made me think a lot about like how the rest of us, those of us who are, are not autistic, how we actually are the disability. It's our reactions that are problematic. And autistic uh, both kids and adults, they get bullied, they get isolated because they don't follow these intuitive scripts that we have. Uh, it's a bit like, you know, one strike and you're out. And one of my participants, Mellon, he talked a lot about everyday life as unreality. That, okay, so it's it's basically just a LARP where all non-autistic 
people, they just know what to do and how to dress and what not to say and how to move their bodies. And they just change all the time depending on the context. But no one ever tells us the rules. And we're just supposed to understand that, but we don't. And when we don't understand that, we get punished, which also seems to make autistic people very hesitant about trying out new things. You know, you find like one model for behaving and you stick to that uh, because it's safe, because no one wants to, you know, uh, be alienated. But in LARPing, like Mellon uh, framed it, he said that in the beginning he was even like wary of like, can I think this? Can I say this? And he realized that I can think or say anything because the other person I'm playing against he has to pretend that this was a totally natural thing to say and just deal with it and make something out of it. So it becomes an opportunity. So you can't do mistakes in the same way that you can do in normal social situations. Well, exactly, because there is no right or wrong. I mean, so so one of the girls I interviewed or the women I interviewed, she said, well, I mean, you can't take up your mobile phone and start speaking because it doesn't fit the narrative. But that, that's it's not hard to figure out, right? Because we're doing a fantasy LARP in the woods or historical LARP in the 15th century. You can't just have a mobile phone in the middle of it. But it's consistent with the, with the expectations that were set at the beginning. So yeah. taking a step back for someone like me who has no idea what lapping really is about, I think, still. Um, how do you get a lap started? So you agree on some form of norms? Do you have some codes available? Yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that. So um, first you have... I think you okay. So let's so let's separate between edularps and larps. So in a larp, say that you're going out three days on a, a, an event. So then you'd have someone who's uh, in charge of it all, and they have created a world, and there will be characters uh, and some kind of like interesting things that will happen uh, during the event, and then the players get to choose what character they want to play and they take it home sort of the script and they uh, rewrite it uh, like how would I want to be what kind of character what kind of history do I have what do I like what do I dislike maybe I have a conflict with someone and then they send it back to be approved uh, and and when you start LARPing you'd know like some of the characters that are relevant to you that okay this will be part of my Oh, she or he is part of my family or I will be married to him or her and this will be my child, maybe. Uh, so so there's a lot of preparations. So the actual LARP is just like a, a short period of time compared to everything that happens before. And also people, a lot of them I interviewed, they talked about how they learned to, to sew and do handicrafts and stuff because you have to you know, make your outfit and the gear you have. And some of them also meet and prepare things together. And then, uh, so so you have this overarching uh, narrative, but you also have a lot of improvisation going on during the LARP to see how things will play out. And in the Scandinavian and uh, Nordic countries, you have something called Nordic LARP, which means that you're not playing to win, so in America, you'd have, you know, you're in the forest and you're fighting a battle, for instance. It's not like that. So it's all about creating something interesting and exploring stuff together. So say, for instance, that you would find a treasure and you take it. So it becomes more interesting if you suddenly stumble and you lose, you know, the treasure is just flying away and someone else takes it and then what? what happens now so you're trying to create these like surprising events in in between the players and that was also interesting for me because autistic people seem to be overrepresented in these uh, hobbies but it it has so many elements that autistic people normally wouldn't like so there's surprises there's improvisation there's a lot of social interaction with a lot of different people and it's also very sensory intense so it's somehow counterintuitive. Like, why would autistic people like that? What What do your participants of your like that you interview tell you about this? Like, do they 
like it in these situations? Or Yeah, but they just love it so much. And uh, so Hedda that I interviewed, I think it was Hedda, who said that it's it's hard, you know, before the LARP starts, when you come uh, to the site uh, and you have to have a normal social interaction. But once the LARP starts, it's just natural and it's really easy. Uh, and you just go into your character and you just see what happens. And I think that's also very interesting. So this thing about autistic people not liking surprises and like and enjoying structures, I think that's a lot about being able to avoid mistakes. Because it's hard as autistic to know, uh, like, you know, imagine, so what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? So they often want to be prepared to be in control of, of the situation, right? But here they don't need any control. Like the whole point is not to have control. And then it's fine, at least for those I've interviewed. And then there's safe spaces, I've heard, that, that they can withdraw in if, if it was getting too much. Right. But are they using those? Yeah, so you have uh, some different devices to make the LARPs safe. So you have consent, for instance, that you decide on beforehand. You know, some of the LARPs are super dark. You could do a Handmaid's Tale LARP and people will be raped. But then you have to consent before, okay, I'm going maybe to lie on top of you or I'm going to push you. And But then also during the LARP, if you feel uncomfortable, there's this international sign where you sort of close your hand and raise it and you say, okay, now I'm speaking out of character. Uh, I thought I would be comfortable, but I'm not. Could we sort of renegotiate this? And then you have a spot where you can withdraw or pause if you want. And it's also funny. When, so I've asked my the people I've interviewed, so how often do you go to this sort of space to have a break? And they don't seem to go there a lot, but they just like having knowing that the space is there. So what is your kind of next steps there? So you're going to interview the adults, they're all 17. Yeah. Um, are you going to be part of more labs? And kind of, I think the one puzzle I really have is how does your experience of laughing change because you could become part of it? So you've said that you've been the principal yeah. in the lab. So you you're not just the old school anthropologists on the sidelines but you're really part of the community it sounds like right so I'm doing participatory observations and a couple of weeks ago I was a journalist on a planet somewhere out in space where there was like a dictatorship and uh, people being divided into two different groups the alphas and the omegas but that's also you know from a methodological perspective I'm trying to you know, play around a little bit because it was hard when I was the principal in the school and I had to engage a lot with what was going on and at the same time observe and try to figure out what are edularps and uh, what are people around me doing. And also one kid dragged me away into another room where he had killed one of the teachers and I had to try <laughs> to solve that problem in my role as a principal <laughs> But so so it was actually good to be a journalist because I could sit on a chair and just take notes. So finding a notes. role that fits the fits your role in real life is good. Well. Yeah. yeah, but I I should also be doing like proper LARPing, just going out for fun to understand what's going on. Yeah. What what is for you the difference between pretend play and role play? Since we talk about role play with adults and often pretend play with children. Yeah. I actually listened to a podcast before coming here today that was about pretend play and autism. They were play, talking a lot about how kids weren't interacting properly with toys. And so that's not really my field, but it was interesting to, you know, how how they would train autistic kids to sort of behave as if they weren't autistic. But what I'm looking more at is, is, you know, the part where you use your imagination to interact with others. So role plays, like if, if I would pretend, if you and I were kids and we would pretend that this is a shop, 
I would have to pretend that I'm not Ingela anymore. I will now be the shopkeeper and I will be this and this, but I will also have to pretend. So now you are my custom customer. You're not Savannah anymore. And so you have to use a lot of mentalization in that interaction, right? And then you also transform things symbolically to be something else. Um, and so this is something I also need to look into, but I'm thinking, you know, when they were describing these kids who were not playing appropriately, so to speak, with toys, I'm just curious about what was going in, on inside their head. Like Edgar, who transformed the room into a spaceship, he was role-playing, right? He had all these characters, but maybe from the outside it looked as if he was just, I don't know, sitting on the floor, staring onto something, I don't know. Um, but it also seems like that then for neurotypical people, it becomes hard to interpret. So it's um, Ella Paldum, who's also on this podcast, kind of serious, talks about the two emp two-way empathy problem. So yeah, in that in the past we have made autism a disability, um, and that is less being less able than neurotypical people. Yeah, and I think now we're finally moving into a space where it's just interpreting worlds from different perspectives and yeah. um, making sense of that. Yeah, definitely. And and I'm especially interested in in narratives, how narratives support role taking and role play. So one of my academic role models, James McGrath, who's he's autistic and he's uh, he's uh, studying literature, uh, and he writes somewhere that it was through literature that he learned how humans, you know, function, what they are like, and I think narratives are like a really nice way of of getting to know other minds and through them also getting to know yourself. So role-playing in LARPing is cool because these are narrative worlds and they seem to attract autistic people. What is then the, the opportunities that IDOLAP has? So this happens in an educational space. So yeah. Um, which also comes with its very own social norms, um, goals, directives. Yeah. And that's interesting because there, then there's a difference. You know, I think people learn a lot through hobby LARPs, but now you have explicit goals and the curriculum that would sort of, you know, state that you need to be able to verbalize something about something. And so there's always uh, some kind of educational goal that you should learn something or show what you know. And it's actually harder to get at, I think, because I think, so for instance, this Alpha and Omega LARP, where I was a journalist, that was about dictatorship. And of course you'd sort of learn, it's a different kind of learning, you know, compared to reading about dictatorship in a book and actually experiencing that, okay, people are now divided into elites and non-elite and how does this affect me how does this feel you have this whole emotional uh, you know register that you can uh, get at um, but it's also a little bit tricky for me as a researcher now to how, how do I yeah I wouldn't say measure but how, how do I know what they learn and how how would the pupils be able to verbalize that so I'm thinking I'm going to interview their teachers because the teachers at this school, they, you know, they hire the LARPing workshop all the time. So there must be something that they see is really positive about the pupils LARPing and learning. So that's work in progress for yeah. me. Do you know what the learning goals were for the Alpha and Omega lab? Yeah, so, so the uh, teachers, they get this material after the LARP uh, where uh, it's stated like, so if you would talk, say in uh, social studies, for instance, you have uh, different, uh, you know, ways of running a country in different uh, 
countries and they have to know about these different sort of type of societies. So then you could work with that, but you can also maybe use it to talk about gender roles, like how do we divide girls and boys into two different categories with different expectations and you could talk about that maybe in i don't know religious studies we talk about religion and gender uh, so so that edularp had more uh, you know like a broader aim that this is a topic that occurs in several different subjects which the teachers can then pick up on and continue talking about it also represents uh reality a bit more i, I don't like this term but um Feels like the world is not selected into different subject areas all the time, so that might help. Exactly. Um, so in the alpha and omega, I'm taking a stab here, but alpha is probably a leading class within the society. Yeah. How was the, what was the role of the alphas and the omegas here? So the alphas were, I think you could translate them into kind of typical gender roles. So they would not be so emotional and they would be strong and they would be doers and they would be leaders. And the Omegas were, were, you know, caring and a bit more cautious and more emotional. So it was actually the gender roles, but divided into like just two classes, really. And how did people become part of those classes? Uh, so there was this ritual. So on this planet, Epsilon, people were born without gender. And when you're 14 years old, you go through this ritual where you have tests to see if you're a proper alpha and a proper omega. But what is then revealed after the edularp is that the leaders have, or the test leaders have already decided because you pretty much become what your family members are because they have expectations. So these are fake tests that you do. But they also got, so they got character sheets with, okay, so you will be from this family and you think that you are an Omega and you are afraid of this, but you like this. And then they got to play out those characters. And it's also nice in, in, in LARPs because you, you can exaggerate a lot. And they also got to practice exaggeration and they also got to practice lying. And there's this warm up exercise where you walk as so walk as if you really needed to go to the loo walk as if you're terrified walk as if you won the lottery so they learn to exaggerate and really play out their roles which i also help think helps social communications because you can really see what's going on and how and so. your behavior affects others if i'm remembering correctly and my studies have been uh, long gone but i think in classical cognitive psychology theories Lying is something that autistic people, at least in the literature, are supposed to not being good at. So yeah. in a lab, you have to lie a lot, I'm assuming. So so yeah. what have you learned there so far? Or like, Well, it was fun to watch when they were practicing lying. So one of the LARPing pedagogues was standing in a door pretending to be a guard and said, you have to lie to get past me because you've been out 10 minutes too late and uh, I'm, I will be angry with you when you come now. So so it was really hard for them to begin with. And then they, when they figured out, okay, I can just pretend that, oh my God, there's a bear approaching. We need to run in really quickly. And then how they would start laughing and find it really <laughs> hilarious. I, I'm in on this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then I interviewed uh, a guy who calls himself Burner Man, who's doing vampire LARPs. And vampire LARPs are like, all about lying and uh, deceiving others and uh, power struggles and also be, they're a bit violent and dark so I asked him like but it, it's like so counterintuitive for me that you would enjoy this so much and he said well I'm actually super bad at lying I can't lie I, I've tried playing characters who lie a lot but it's so hard because then I have to keep track of what lies I told and it doesn't come intuitively because it's also connected to mentalization, right? So if I say this, you will believe that and then you will behave like this and then I can, can take advantage of that. So he said that he tries to avoid those kinds of characters. And also, as I said before, you, you're part of building your character. So he wants to have really physical characters because it's sort of big and strong or he has these wise academic characters that are more in the background and you know 
give advice to the younger vampires. Um, so he was adapting to find characters that suited him better. What theories do you draw on when you look at your data now moving forward? So I'm planning uh, to use the predictive processing model. And there's a lot of literature on autism and predict predictive processing right now. Uh, and as I said before, it's hard for autistic people to predict what's going to happen. Uh, so that's interesting. It, it seems as if, if, if autistic perception is sort of just filled with a lot of constant surprises. Everything is a surprise. It's really hard to generalize knowledge. So going to the supermarket, you can ritualize that and you do it the same way every time. But, but then when you go to another supermarket, it's tricky because it's another supermarket, right? And it all becomes a bit fragmented and unpredictable again. But um, Mark Anderson and Andreas Hopstoff and some colleagues wrote this really nice article about fun. Uh, so, you know, if... So basically our brains, according to this theory, the, the, the main task of the brain is just to predict what's going to happen. And if you make a, a, the wrong prediction, you get surprised, right? But people also like surprises a little bit. You know, you go to the fun fair or you go to those like haunted houses or you watch uh, like I'm all into like Nordic noir on Netflix, like detective stories, and you get really surprised. So, so you, ha so they describe fun as sort of a balance between, like, you know, if you have too little surprises, things get boring, and if you have too much, it gets scary. But if it's fun, that means that you have like the right amount of surprises or stimuli. So I, I'm planning to use that to also talk about, you know, how the pupils they just think it's so fun. So it seems as if these autistic individuals who find that everyday life is just too much. It's just overwhelming. But in LARPs, it's fun. And that, that's telling somehow, according to this model. Thank you so much for joining us. So I'm excited what is going to come and what you're going to learn from talking to a lot of people within your community. Where can people find out more about you? Like, where would one contact you or dig into your research? So... Um, If anyone's interested in like reading articles I've published, I'm on both Academia and ResearchGate. But uh, um, contact information is also on uh, the Interacting Minds Center webpage and also the Swedish university where I work, Dalarna University. But I'm the only one in the whole world with this name, so it's easy to Google. To oh, find that's out. Wonderful. And we also link uh, all information in the show notes so people can look up um, also Ido Lapping and find out more on what is available to them. Brilliant. But uh, thank you so much, and I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of the project. Yeah, thanks. This podcast is edited and produced by Kirsi Tilk, Anno Quentin Vermier, and Savannah Scholz. Music by Simon Karg. The podcast is funded by the Interacting Mind Center Seed Funding Grant. Visit the Interacting Mind Center website to gain access to show notes and further information at interactingminds.au.dk.